0: The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief, and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down Share your true thoughts about your journey and discuss things with an open mind in a non judgmental environment.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Spiritual Brew Pub. I'm your host, Michael Camp. And uh, today's podcast, we have a fascinating guest who has an amazing story. Uh, He's going to tell us about his experience in the evangelical movement. Uh, Rob Schenck is an evangelical minister, an author, a top cast member of two acclaimed documentaries, and also the uh, president of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. Rob, welcome to the
2: podcast. Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you're on, and we're going to have a great conversation today. Um, I want to tee it up a little bit, though, and kind of start with some of the things that we have in common Um, I think uh, we both got involved in the evangelical movement in the seventies and the eighties. Is that true for you? Right. Okay. Yep. And we were both in ministry uh, you uh, as a a minister and me as a missionary, um, both very active in operation rescue. (laughs) Uh, We're going to hear about that. The uh, pro-life anti-abortion organization that did sit-ins in front of clinics and, um, I think you were a prominent leader in that movement. And I was a participant in two rescues in Los Angeles back in the day, way back in 1989. um, Both of us went through changes uh, that's helped us, uh, that started us down a path where we looked at some of these issues like abortion and gun rights and some others very differently. And um, what I'm really interested in today, and I'm very impressed with, is the lessons that you have learned in your experience, and you spell those out in, in your book, uh, Costly Grace, uh, and evangelical ministers' re- rediscovery of faith, hope, and love, and in the two documentaries that you've participated in, Armor of Light and AKA Jane Roe. So, um, just to give the conversation some context, so maybe at a, a bird's eye view, could you 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 often say that you went gone through three conversions? In summary, what are those conversions?
2: Yeah, well, Michael, the the three are probably really three hundred. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, all right, the, the, all right. You the know, three main ones that yeah that, these that open three. up other ones. I, yeah, exactly. three yes. summary conversions yep. uh, right. because life is never that simple, as we both know. Yep. But um, but yeah, I would say the you know the mile markers, if you will, on. The lifeline for me would be the first conversion that happened when I was in my late teens. Uh, This was the mid 1970s. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was invited to a small country church. Uh, Here's, you know, at that time I was um, a non religious, uh, you know, kind of skeptic. I guess I had a belief in God, but I had been raised in a nominally Jewish home uh, and didn't know much about church or Christianity. So I was invited by the son of a Methodist minister to a Friday night prayer service at his church, and I ducked in, more out of curiosity than anything else, and heard the minister talk about the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. Mm Mm-hmm. The son of God uh, blessing peacemakers, which resonated with me because my first act of protest was against the Vietnam War. I was oh, very much okay. anti-war at that time. I mm-hmm. am again today, but wasn't mm-hmm. in the interim. But in any case, uh, that resonated. And then, uh, of course, he blessed the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, uh, those who were in prison. And I said, boy, I, I, I like this guy. I like yeah. this message. And it was in that place that I eventually uh, made a public profession of Christian faith. And it revolutionized my life. I truly was born again. And that's how I described myself at the mm-hmm. time as a born again Christian. I made Jesus the Lord and uh, Savior of my life and endeavored to emulate him to follow him so a couple of years later when uh, I, I turned 18 and could cast my first vote for president i looked for the guy who looked the most like the jesus i met that night yeah in that little country church and i found him in jimmy carter <laughs> i knew you were going to say that <laughs> so i cast my first presidential vote for jimmy carter I mean you know I'm I'm chagrined to tell you that uh I wouldn't vote for a democrat again for 40 years. Yeah, right. Because yeah because
1: <laughs> yeah that that was you didn't vote for the right person. Let me let's let's straighten you out here, Rob.
2: <laughs> I, I was later told that. Um, yeah, exactly. I got the same type of thing, yeah. Yeah, how dare you. Uh, right. And and you know of course uh, that goes to my second conversion because in the, by the mid 1980s I had been to Bible college you know in our mm-hmm. wing of the evangelical movement we typically did not go to seminary which is a graduate level education we went to Bible school which is three years of training mm-hmm. for uh, for Christian ministry. And i'd been ordained and eventually took my seat at the table of national christian leadership in the national association of evangelicals where i served on several committees and we were the first body of evangelical leaders to be addressed by a a sitting president namely ronald reagan right right
1: interesting yeah
2: and it was under that presidential aura glow uh that I underwent what I now call my second conversion to Ronald Reagan Republican religion, mm-hmm. which is distinctly different from Christianity. And most yes. certainly uh, yeah. the opposite of what I first saw in Jesus uh, back right. in the mid seventies. And I would spend 35 years or so, uh, you know, taking a journey to the right, the right wing of uh american evangelicalism until finally i had to come to terms with what i was seeing in the movement i was helping to lead at the time uh by the early 1990s i was situated in washington d.c literally on capitol hill with a ministry headquarters building across the street from the supreme court one minute from the capitol and 10 minutes from the white house i was in the center the epicenter of American politics, and I was using my position to influence elected and appointed officials uh, to embrace the values I thought would benefit America and reflect uh, Christian principles the most. But it was in that political work that I came to realize that we were actually contradicting what I now call the ministry message and mission of christ right that's amazing i had to come to terms with that and it was very jarring can i tell you one little detailed part of that? yeah sure go ahead yeah Mm -hmm. if we have the time i'll I'll just tell you that i had taken a leave of absence to do my late in life doctoral work at my alma mater faith evangelical seminary in tacoma washington and i was in the dusty Uh, dingy basement library reading through uh, some history on the evangelical church in uh, Nazi Germany, Mm -hmm. only to discover that one of the sources I was trained to repeatedly go to throughout my ministerial career, the New Testament Dictionary of Theology, edited by Gerhard Kittle. You probably have one on your shelf.
1: Oh, right, the Kittle commentary, right? Yes,
2: and I was told, like you probably were, never prepare a sermon without consulting Kittle. Go to Kittle. Yeah, Yeah. my my Bible college professors would say, "Have you checked Kittle on that?" So I was trained to do that, and I did it for forty years. Mm -hmm. But no one ever bothered to tell me that Gerhard Kittle was Adolf Hitler's resident theologian that gave him oh my theological gosh. justification for genocide. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. And I I wow. had to wonder why did why was I never informed about this? Yes. Why didn't anyone ever discuss it? And I think right. there's reasons it was yeah. never discussed. But I'm tell, I'm saying that because that was one of the very jarring moments that propelled me to my third conversion right which took me back to that jesus on the sermon on the mount with the help of my favorite dead german dietrich bonhoeffer uh, a courageous yeah. brave brilliant young right. church leader who challenged right. adolf hitler and was murdered for his resistance to right. nazism so that led to a massive change uh in my life and work but uh that's the summary of the three
1: wow that's amazing um I can relate to a lot of that. Uh, it's almost like um, you. I had a very similar experience. I mean, you get. I had this, you know, sp- great spiritual experience. I was very uh, uh, amazed by Jesus's teachings. Um, they were just revolutionary, and then you get into the church and and it's like oh you can't be a pacifist michael oh you can't do this right you know you, oh you have you can't vote democrat you can you know all this stuff and it just kind of slowly changes you and you really and it's just like you said one day you if you're really honest <laughs> you wake up and go actually we're not on the path of christ anymore what's going on so i've i completely relate to everything you said um One of the things is that I wonder, like, do we just make compromises, you know, like a young person who reads the Gospels and is enamored with Christ, and then they just get into this uh, movement, churches, institutions, training, uh, how do evangelicals get sucked into a politicized faith?
2: Yeah, that's at once, I think, a simple question and a very, very complex one. But as you just described, and by the way, it's so nice to discover you as a companion on this otherwise fairly lonely journey.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. Um,
2: there aren't many, and Jesus said so. He said the narrow road is one that very few people travel. So, um it's lonely, but it's not empty, and I find a few souls like yourself pilgrims on the narrow way, and and that's wonderful, and I discover more and more of them as time goes on. But, um, you know, I think it, 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 there's something that cuts both ways here, because we all have a need to be part of a community, uh, to be connected to people, to belong. Mm-hmm to be welcomed. And so, I, you know, it was certainly one of the things that propelled me towards Christian faith and community was, it was like an extended family. Yes. And that was really important to me at the same time, just like any family, uh, the Christian family can be very abusive, mm-hmm. massively dysfunctional, mm-hmm. Um the communities I've been a part of and that I've led and that I've contributed this function to were certainly that way. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we put demands, uh, you know, it's almost like people are teased. You know, you can come in and you can sit with us and you can be with us and we'll even love on you initially, but then you have to meet some demands, right. yep. some criteria. If you want to stay here, if you want to be fully embraced, mm-hmm. if you want access, you know, uh, to places of meaning and service, then, then you've got to start uh, meeting these demands and measuring up. And these are all things, I think, completely contradict the gospel, which is an expansive, limitless welcome to community and and to relationship with God and with one another. So once we start putting these parameters around it and saying, yes, you are welcome if you do Mm -hmm. these things, if you live in these ways, if you reflect these beliefs and practices, Mm -hmm. then you can stay. But otherwise... We're gonna at least give you the cold shoulder and possibly muscle you out,
1: right? No, and I experienced all of those things. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. The non, yeah the the initial honeymoon stage is nice. You're lo- you're loved into this community. You're you know <laughs> you're welcomed, and especially if you if you initially you know go through and accept Christ and become a born again Christian and all this stuff, get baptized. And then you find out it's transactional. It's it's like, okay, yeah, this is not going to go on forever. Now the transactions have to come up. <laughs> and, you know, it could be, very, depending on your community or church uh, affiliation, it could be more prayer and Bible study or prayer meetings early in the morning, or it could be Um, you know, you have to believe here's a statement of faith. you got to believe all this stuff. And if you don't believe this stuff, then you really can't become a member and, you know, on and on. And really it's, it's just making a bunch of clones. And at the end of the day that everyone looks and sounds, sounds alike. And, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of things. And then you brought up the abuse, of course, that's, and because when you have a very narrow way of looking at the world and you've got, um, you you a claim that the bible says x y and z and you've got to follow everything to a t then you know they just they just make that into a a way of life that really is like spiritually abusive as you as you very well know um yes you know you cannot uh you, you cannot uh have out, the 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 road is so narrow that you cannot just be on even on the fringe. You have to be right there, uh, or else you're corrected, you're manipulated, you know, here you know, all kinds of things. So we're certainly on the same page with that. But one of the things that um, I was very uh, struck with was your your uh, addressing the gun culture in Christianity and you know, it sounded like, this is in the uh, documentary Armor of Light, folks, this is a great uh, documentary you should should watch, um, and you realize that, you know, your fellow Christians are much more pro-gun than you ever thought, and, and you're trying to reconcile, can you be pro-gun and pro-life? What's going on? So, uh, you know, what, what uh what prompted that what what, how did that work out how did you discover this pro-gun culture and and how did you handle it
2: well i hadn't thought much about it in 30 plus years of national evangelical leadership i hadn't thought much about Mm -hmm. popular gun culture and particularly its embrace by my fellow evangelical christians but you know more and more data was coming in of course michael you remember i'm sure as well as i do the agony when our folks our pro-life folks quote unquote started shooting doctors yeah and and clinic staff right uh, and and others uh and of course that had started with bombing and destroying properties Mm -hmm. Uh, so violence had entered the movement and that was jarring but i i I dismissed it by conveniently sort of putting it in a box and saying that's a rarity. It's an anomaly. You know, these people are, well,
1: yeah. Yeah. We, we did that too. Uh, You know, I was in operation rescue. We'll talk about that later, but yeah, those are the other guys. Those are the extremists. We're not extreme. You know, we, we, and, and, and you do that for everything. You do that, you know, whenever some, crazy thing happens and someone bases it on evangelical or conservative Christian beliefs. Oh, we're not like that. We're, we're not that bad, (laughs) but you got to look a little bit closer to see how, you know, whether maybe you are contributing to it. Is that, is that the kind of thing you're saying?
2: Yeah. And literally so, because I'll tell you, um, with one of those notorious uh, gun murders of uh, an abortion provider you know the leaders that I kept company with we were very quick to make public statements denouncing it yeah, and, right. and rightfully yep. so and I feel yep. good about that part right. we we called it unchristian we called it cowardly yep. we called it criminal we called it immoral mm-hmm. and we denounced it and thinking, you know, these people are coming from somewhere else, and maybe they're even plants. We, we would make that excuse. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. All <laughs> you know, oh, these are some the Antifa, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. In the days before Antifa, or we would have named Antifa. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you know, then somebody sent sent me a photo of mm-hmm. one of our press conferences, where the perpetrator of that murder is standing right alongside me. In a in a photo. I didn't know oh, wow. him at the time. Wow. I didn't even remember that news conference, but there it was. In other words, he was close enough that he was in our lineup. I may not have known him personally, but he was definitely embedded in our movement. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we would do everything we could to justify our own consciences, to exempt ourselves from culpability or accountability. And I did that pretty effectively uh, for for most of those uh, years. But I would hear from time to time, for example, a longtime friend of mine, a Baptist minister uh, I have known for many years and had been uh, and was very involved in Operation Rescue and other wings of the pro-life movement. And one day he says to me, uh, you know, Rob, I never go into the pulpit. Without my uh, sidearm, without my oh handgun, my God. I never said, going to the vault. <laughs> Dave, what? What? I said, well, "What are you talking about?" He said, oh "Look, God. look!" And he pulled back his jacket, and he's got oh a nine buddy. millimeter semi-automatic handgun oh on his belt. God. And I said, "What are you doing? What are you thinking?" And he said, "Anybody comes into my church and stands up." and says something I don't understand in a language I don't understand, I'll take him right out from the sacred desk. What? And I said, okay, brother. You know, we we affectionately refer to each other as brother and sister. I said, look, brother, you know as well as I do, when you fire that round, you can't control where it's going. So let me just take you this far. When you miss that guy and you shoot a grandma, and maybe her granddaughter sitting next to her. How are you going to recover from that? And he said, that's the price we have to pay to guard the sheep. Oh, my gosh.
1: I can't believe that.
2: Okay. So I said, we are we are in a very bad way here. Just, just that,
1: let me know. How long ago was this? What was this
2: in time? I want to say um, that had to be s- s- somewhere around 2010. Okay. Yeah. So... Yeah, when I I was just
1: thinking back, back in the day when I was embedded in the church, I I just can't imagine that being happening happening. I mean, I I remember people saying, yeah, I'd grab a gun and protect my family and shoot the guy who comes in the door, but not bring a gun up into the pulpit. I mean, or, or now the big thing is, oh, yeah, I want my congregation armed if, you know, if possible, you know,
2: (laughs) that's amazing. That's Absolutely. just incredible. And, um, and, and, and that's it. I mean, it, it happened incrementally and then reached a yes. certain tipping point. Right. right. And, and and this is where I sometimes go to my show and tell, Michael. I know I asked you permission to do this. Oh, um, yes. Yes. May I, may I, yeah, yeah, I go ahead. This now? is a
1: very important thing to, to see. It's disturbing, but important.
2: It is disturbing, and, and I just want to say, if anyone is a survivor of gun violence, a victim of gun violence, um, you may not want to watch this, uh, this little illustration here. Um, not that it involves a real firearm. You're not going to see a real firearm here. I just want to put you at, at ease about that. But I do want you to see this, because I think it's very telling about the trouble we are in as an evangelical culture. In the United States, this is this looks like what you might assume it to be either a Bible, or actually, when you see the zipper case, these handy, snazzy zippers, uh, it usually indicates uh, a Bible cover that's meant Mm -hmm. to protect your favorite uh, Bible volume. And a lot of evangelicals carry these routinely. I did for many years. I now Mm -hmm. use the digital Bible, but you know, Mm -hmm. back in the day. But a, a whole lot of Christians still use a paper Bible, and 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 I, I love paper, so I have lots of paper volumes. But this is meant to protect it, and, you know, it's a nice cover. It has the embossed Holy Bible on the front, a nice silver cross on the mm-hmm. spine. Yeah. It has this handy zipper so that you can protect your favorite Bible pages from dirt and dust and, and rain and whatever uh, other contaminants might come its way. And of course, you can slip uh, note paper and highlighters. And, you know, evangelicals take a lot of notes, especially during the preaching uh, of a sermon. So, you know, uh, these are very popular. And this happens to be one of the most popular Bible covers sold in America. The only problem is when you open it, and I guess for those who are only listening, I'll describe this as best I can if you can't see it. But when you open this Bible cover, the problem is there's no room inside for Holy Writ. There's no room for the scriptures, for a Bible volume to be contained in it. The only thing that this uh, Bible cover will contain is this, a semi-automatic pistol. This is plastic, by the way, folks. This is not a real weapon. Uh, But it's the same dimensions as a real weapon. And Mm -hmm. the manufacturer of this Bible cover, Garrison Grip, of Ohio brags that it's one of their most popular products and it will contain any semi-automatic handgun, uh, Sig Sauer 226, Glock nine millimeter. And they even were sure to include enough room for an additional magazine so that you never run out of ammunition. Now, when you think about this, one of the things I like to say, and, and Michael, you heard me say it in Armor of Light in the film, We have to be careful that in respecting the Second Amendment to the US Constitution, we don't violate the Second Commandment. And the Second Commandment can be read two ways. Jesus said the second of the two great commandments is to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. If you don't want someone pointing a Glock 9mm handgun in your face, don't point one in theirs. Mm -hmm. That's one. The other is the Second Commandment of the Ten the prohibition against make the making of graven images well when you talk about a firearm it's a graven image of power it's a Mm -hmm. way of dominating others Mm -hmm. with a graven or hand designed and engineered uh, instrument I, i would argue it is an idol in america because it gives us a false sense of power, and domination over others. So, you know, this is an indicator of how sick the American evangelical population is. And Garrison Grip, that makes this gun bible, they call it, uh, brags that they ship uh, cartons of these to churches all across America, because pastors are encouraging their people to come to church armed, and this is one of the ways to conceal their weapons. It's amazing.
1: I, like I said, I, back in the 80s and 90s, I, I don't believe that would ever happen. But nowadays, it does. And it's gotten worse. And like you said, gun culture. I mean, there's a, there's a legitimate reason for some people to own guns. Yeah, sure. But it, this is not a normal behavior in using a gun. It just, it's just incredible. Um, plus the and, fact And that, that's
2: why, by the way, I took on yeah. the film... Yeah, because when abigail disney uh yes i know everybody's asking in their mind disney you mean the disney Yes, she is the grandniece oh she is okay disney yeah okay yeah and uh she isn't an you know an empty-headed heiress this is a very uh capable filmmaker professional Mm -hmm. she has a Mm -hmm. phd from columbia right she runs several businesses um production company she's quite an accomplished individual and she came to me and said you know i'm not a religious person i left the church decades ago and have never returned but she said i can't imagine that this gun culture uh, among american evangelicals who are in the top groups subpopulation groups in america to have access to firearms or own firearms or to defend unfettered second amendment gun rights and are most resistant to gun regulation this is evangelicals yeah she right. said i can't imagine this comports with who you understand jesus to be and she said i dare you to go on camera and examine this problem with me and and eventually oh. i did i was very reluctant at okay first. so she approached you okay she did and i was i was uh, reluctant because i knew i would be punished for doing yes.
1: oh yeah, you're gonna, there's a price to pay.
2: Yeah, it's one thing to challenge the second commandment, it's another right. to challenge the second amendment. And I knew I'd be more severely punished for the latter oh than for the former. Well, and that's yeah, why share, I took on the film project.
1: Yeah, share a little bit about what well, what happened in the film is that you met uh, uh the mother of Jordan Davis. I forgot her name, but Lucy uh, McBath. Yeah, Lucy and McBath. So what what was that like? I mean, Jordan Davis was a victim of gun violence and the um well i'm sorry what's it called the uh stand your ground law or something exactly exactly well what was that like to meet this woman and in her grief over her son who was killed absurdly because of gun culture
2: (laughs) when i think of that first encounter michael um you saw it play out on the film in real time unrehearsed i didn't even know who was coming to see me oh yeah I knew a woman who had lost her child to gun violence, but I didn't know it was Lucy. I knew nothing about Lucy. Mm -hmm. And she came to see me at my ministry headquarters on Capitol Hill. And we met in what we called our prayer garden. It was this little walled in English uh, patio, uh, very lovely setting. And uh, I greeted her, welcomed her. And she told me the story of how she lost her only child okay 17 year old son whom she had largely raised as a single parent and he and his friends three uh three others four boys in all drive up to uh you know a quick mart what do you call it convenience store like a right. 711 711 yeah mm-hmm. not sure it was a 711 but something in that genre they drove up and they were listening to their hip hop music three african-american young men and a white uh contractor builder drives up uh shouts at them tells them to turn down their music and he was you know vile and insulting in in saying it and you know like uh like teenage boys do they said uh you yeah. know whatever and, right uh, exactly just yeah. roll your window up you know yeah roll your window up and with that he reached into his glove compartment pulled out his 9 millimeter his nine, his glock a uh, pistol and fired uh several rounds into the car killing young jordan wow and i'm telling incredible. you when i retell this story michael it's waves of emotion it's... because in hearing this mother describe what it was to lose her child her only child Mm -hmm. in this kind of hideous act of violence was overwhelming to me and remember you know we were part of the pro-life movement michael you know we championed motherhood Mm -hmm. the mother-child bond Mm -hmm. it was a, a, a central part of our ethic and morals. And to hear this and think of my friends, colleagues, fellow ministers who were keeping Glock 9 millimeters in their glove compartments, just like that guy did, who yeah. would eventually attempt to use the Florida Stand Your Ground law, which allows you to attack another person on the presumption that they are a threat, not that they really are, but that you feel they are a threat. If
1: you, you just have to feel like it, and then you're yes.
2: you're justified, <laughs> and you just... can pursue them. It's not that you're in a defensive posture, as in stand your ground. You come after me, I'll shoot you. You are allowed to actually oh, pursue. Wow! And he and that's the defense he used. He would ultimately fail. Literally, but he didn't. Thank but, but at first, but at first it was a mistrial, right? That's correct. Yes that's correct it was a mistrial
1: that must have been just
2: devastating to, to have that
1: it, it sounds like it's a no-brainer the guy <laughs> it's a no-brainer indescribable. What, what's the argument
2: well you know here was his argument his argument was what was I supposed to do it was four black boys against me oh my gosh what would you do yes. if it, his his yeah. attorney said what uh, would you do if four black kids um uh, the racism drove
1: up- is just crazy I
2: mean just I mean I mean and speaking of, may I tell you about a uh, scene you don't see in the documentary? Yeah. There was a there was a proposed scene, mm-hmm. but the film crew was chased out of the room when I sat with a number of pastors, ordained clergy, ministers, in a room on the border of southern Ohio and northern Kentucky. And as we were talking, First they said, the film crew leaves the room, we don't want them here. So we chased the film crew out, we sat alone, and I asked these, this collection of ministers, how many of you are armed? Mm-hmm. Every one of them, every one of the wow. 20 or so around the table were armed. Yeah. And yeah. I said, okay, brothers, that's how we speak. Uh, I said, brothers, tell, they were all men, of course, uh, conservative evangelicals all, and I said, Oh, okay, tell me what, what leads to you drawing your weapon and shooting to kill. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of uncomfortable body language around the room until finally a man in his early 60s said, I'll tell you, brother, I'll tell you what it is. I said, well, please, brother, help me to understand. When do you draw the weapon and shoot to kill? As a Christian, as a minister of the gospel, as a peacemaker, how do you? when do you do that? And he said, well, that has to do with a man's skin color. And I said, okay, brother, tell me, I don't understand. How does skin color factor into this? Mm -hmm. If you're presented with what you think is a threat, what difference does it make? What the color of his skin is? He said, no, no, you don't understand. He said, in this county, a black man knows he doesn't belong in this county. So I don't care how dangerous a white man looks he's not as dangerous as a black man who's in a place he doesn't belong. Oh my gosh. And that's what makes the difference for me. And, and I, I looked around, and I said, brothers, <laughs> help me here to what understand. And they all just kind of looked like resigned, like that's the way it is here, brother. That's yeah, the way yeah. it is. So race so, is a component of this and, and we have to face yeah. it. And that's why seeing a black woman describe this at the hands of a white man was so unsettling to the point where it started oh, yeah. dismantling all of this for me. And, and it was a very, very powerful instrument in helping me to understand no. what was wrong. Yeah,
1: that's, that's wild. I mean, I, I'm kind of speechless. I just can't, I can hardly believe, I mean, these people have just thrown out the, 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 Jesus' teachings as, as well. They just totally, I mean, like, oh, that has nothing to do with this. You're in this County. <laughs> this is different. <laughs> I'm sure Jesus would agree with us if he was in this County, <laughs> whatever they think they're not, they're not even believers. They're not even followers. No, that's, that's amazing. So let's pivot a little bit. I want to also cover um, your experience in operation rescue, which we had said is kind of a sit in an uh, organization that organized sit-ins in front of abortion clinics. Um, later on, it became known as Operation Save America. And um, what was your role in that organization? What did you What did you end up doing?
2: Well, mostly, um, you know, it was a very fluid group. I, you probably remember that. You know, various personalities would emerge and then retreat and it was very dynamic and you know very personality driven um and and i was from time to time one of the leaders of you know uh one of the organizers i should probably say of some of the massive large-scale uh blockades uh, that we called rescues uh, when we would literally did you,
1: use did you go to uh were you involved in 1989
2: in la no, no, um, okay. I wasn't. Um, I was just getting involved in the movement at that time. I, I okay, had, I had done my first rescue in 1988. By '89, I was just just finding my way in the movement. It wouldn't be until the early '90s that I. Really okay,
1: so that was a little bit. Uh, nice I, I of was it. in uh, two rescues in 1989
2: in in LA. So I, I yeah, was aware of them. I was certainly yeah, conscious right. of them. Yeah. Yeah
1: so i knew what you
2: were up to right (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) i wasn't up i wasn't there right um but eventually i would i would take a leadership role especially in western new york i was in wichita uh for the big one there um summer of mercy we called it right Uh, but i was one of the principal organizers for the spring of life uh in uh 1992 okay In. uh in Western New York, where we had thousands of protesters in the streets. We shut down whole uh, parts of the city. Uh, we blockaded many clinics. Um, and, and that's kind of what put me on the national stage. Even though I was never actually a leader in Operation Rescue proper, we had a component of that called uh, Western New York Rescue. Okay. And I was one of the leaders there, but that put me on the national stage repeatedly right. In, right. in many other places. So that was my role was really an organizer, an advisor, a motivational speaker, if you will. You know, I'd get up there to cheer on the troops and get them to the doors and get them to hunker right. down and suffer right. arrest and endure yep. uh, the, the prosecutions and the jailings. And I was jailed myself, as I know you were. Yeah. So that was yep. that was my it, role.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that's Operation Rescue. Um, later on, uh, well, let's just kind of give a give a little summary of of the documentary, aka Jane Roe. So Jane Rowe uh, of Roe v. Wade. Her real name was Norma McCorvey, and uh, you knew her personally. I did. And, and um, sometime. I think it was in the 1995 or six or something. She supposedly became a born again Christian, right? Joined the evangelical movement. That's
2: the story she told. Yes.
1: That's what she told. But then in AKA Jane Roe, we find out that's not the whole story. And there's a lot of things right. going on behind that most people didn't realize. But what was your, what was your relationship with her like and w- what happened?
2: Well, getting to know Norma. Um, And I affectionately referred to her as Sister Norma, Mm -hmm. Um, Norma McCorvey, we all know her in her pseudonym, uh, Jane Roe, which was designed to keep her identity anonymous during the notorious 1973 Supreme Mm -hmm. Court case that would be known Mm -hmm. as Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. And uh, if people don't know the backstory, I'll tell it very quickly. Uh, You know, Norma was um, alcohol addicted uh, as a young woman in Texas, uh, pregnant in the late 1960s uh, with her third pregnancy uh, when she was sought out by uh, two lawyers who uh, were really looking for the right subject to challenge abortion on the national scale, uh, on the national scene through a Supreme Court case. And they enlisted her involvement in that case, and she became the anonymous Jane Roe, suing the state of Texas for the right to a safe and legal abortion. Right. That never happened uh, during her pregnancy, so she actually gave birth to that child. But the long story short is... um, Norma became an icon in the uh, pro-choice movement until she felt alienated and sometimes exploited within that movement, and she kind of started looking over to the other side. and And this, this <laughs> yeah. is to understand Norma, because Norma's whole life was the struggle of survival. Mm-hmm. She had been terribly abused. Uh, as a child, both physically and psychologically. She was arrested uh, as a young teenager and put in the old, uh, what did they call them, reform schools? Yeah, right, right. right. uh, And and was sexually abused there. Then she married a very abusive man when she was 16 who Mm -hmm. beat her. Uh, And uh, all of this led to a lifetime of survival. Mm -hmm. And in a way, she was looking to survive, and she befriended uh, one of the leaders of what had now become known as Operation Save America, Flip Benham. I knew Flip very well. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was what we call a street preacher. You know what that is. You stand up literally on a soapbox and preach wherever you are. And, uh, and, And they did have they did have a kind of transactional friendship. Uh, They each got something out of the other, and eventually Flip would baptize Norma in a backyard swimming pool and show her off as a kind of trophy. Uh, Mm -hmm. Here was the icon of the pro-choice movement, now becomes the born-again icon of the pro-life movement. Right. Right. And as soon as i heard word of that i'm sorry and and ashamed and and regretful of this and i don't expect any sympathy for it because it was wrong period and it was injurious to a lot of people including to norma but i exploited norma when i heard of her conversion To the pro-life cause i immediately made arrangements for her to come to washington i put her on a national stage i choreographed a moment with with randall terry where they would hug and kiss each other on the cheek on stage and we would capture that uh, Mm -hmm. as a symbol that we had scored the big victory we brought over the the movement uh figure from the pro-choice to the pro Life camp. And that just became the way Norma was used for the next. Well, I lose count of the years, but as many as 20 years, maybe wow. 15, 20 years. And Norma would come to see me in Washington. She called me Pastor Rob. We would talk. I I enjoyed Norma. I loved her.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I knew by the way, she's passed on for those yes, who aren't aware of that. Right. She's, yep. she, she's passed on, but Norma would confide in me. And I knew she was at least ambivalent about the pro-life ethic, the pro-life cause, our pro-life beliefs. I knew she harbored pro-choice sensibilities and mm-hmm. knew that she couldn't talk about that anymore because she was yeah. making a living as a pro-life spokesperson. I knew that, right. and right. I was willing to give her the pass. There were bigger problems than that, even bigger problems than that, and that was her long-time same-sex relationship mm-hmm. with her right. lesbian partner. That became a problem, but we were all willing to kind of give it a wink and a nod because she was so valuable to our right, yeah, exactly, as a trophy. <laughs> and, and we didn't want to tarnish That's... the trophy.
1: That's that blows me away, because, like I said, you know, most evangelical churches would have given her the right foot of fellowship, booted her out because she refused to change. Apparently, she still drank. She still had this lesbian relationship and she wasn't really repenting. And she was but,
2: smoking, Michael. And she, she oh, was well, oh, smoking. yeah.
1: And then also <laughs> smoking. And that's not cigarette. Right, yeah, right. And that's bad before too, speaking
2: right. at a church. Sanctuary. Yeah, yeah, right, right. That was appalling. Never mind the pro-joy stuff. She's smoking a cigarette out in the alley. It was preposterous. Right. It was abusive yeah, of us. It was it was exploitative. It was cheap. It was dehumanizing for her. It was contemptuous of her. And I regret it deeply. And uh, I only I, wish I could go and beg her pardon, but I can't. She's gone. No, I know.
1: I mean in <laughs> and fairness to you i mean we were all brainwashed to think that way that this was a grievous sin and you know this person needed to repent and we have to get her out of this relationship it's going to it's dangerous and all that stuff and so that's what they told us to do that's what we did that's what we thought we were doing the right thing i guess i don't know i mean we don't stop and think about it
2: no, you know? no, no, and in fact, uh, I say today, even though I remain, as you know, an evangelical minister, I've got a certificate on my wall that attests to it. Right. Uh, so I still identify as an evangelical, but but one of the one of the most harmful uh, elements within American evangelicalism is that critical thinking is not only unwelcome; it's considered a vice, not a virtue. Right. If you think critically, if you ask too many questions, if you can't come up with pat answers, you're something of a heretic. Yeah. And, exactly. and you no longer belong. Yep. So we That's couldn't exactly think right. critically about Norma. Mm-hmm. We couldn't think about the nuances, the, mm-hmm. the complexities of her life, her experience, her thinking, or her relationships. And as you know, uh, one of one of my deepest regrets was the role I played in reinforcing her resolve uh, to leave her longtime partner. Yeah, uh, because it could not be sustained in in the new professional environment that she was in. She had to perform uh, as an actor. Uh, on the stage on the pro-life stage and it wasn't going to work if she had a a same-sex partner in life and so i reinforced her resolve to leave her longtime partner and and that's that that, that's something that's um it's a regret i'll 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 have for the rest of my life
1: yeah well, it's it's a sad story and it's a sad commentary on, for the most part, a lot of well-meaning people. But on the other hand, there's a lot of people that really should know better. <laughs> and it should at least stop and think about it more. I mean, it, that's the part that blows me away. When I started to look into the whole homosexual issue, I was just amazed how off we were. We were just completely off. We I mean, we're not going to talk about that now, but just you just do a little study on homosexuality in the Bible, the words that are translated, that word, uh, what's the history of it, what was really going on in those ancient cultures, which was nothing to do with consensual loving relationships. And Jesus, of course, never mentioned a word about homosexuality. Nor abortion, uh, by the way, which was Nora widely Borschen. practiced in the right. ancient
2: world, um, right? but it's so, never mentioned.
1: Yeah, that's so, it's interesting. I mean, it's just sad. So anyways, you, I mean, you actually made a statement once that just blew me away. You said, when you, did, when you do what we did to Norman McCorvey, you
2: lose your soul. I mean, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, first of all, when you treat another human being with contempt. Mm-hmm when you objectify them as we did with norma in making her a trophy instead of honoring her humanity right using her as a prop you not only insult that human person's dignity and what i refer to as their 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 divine quality. In other words, you know, as a Christian, I believe that every human being is created in the image of God and reflects the nature and beauty of God. Mm-hmm. And so in reducing someone to a prop, to a trophy, to a, a, a canard, something that we blame shift to, a. Uh, 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 you know we actually we actually disregard our own humanity because human souls are are meant to connect with each other we're built for community mm-hmm. for family for relationships for community we need right. and want each other right. but when you cut someone off from that soul connection
1: mm-hmm. you,
2: you diminish yourself yeah you starve your own soul to death and you become inhuman, I might say unhuman, non-human
3: mm-hmm.
2: so that when I say you lose your soul, you lose all your sensibilities about what it means to be human, what it means to be yeah. spiritually connected, and you become a you become a two-dimensional actor yourself so uh, it happened to me in my relationship, or lack of relationship, to Norma, and to many others. And it's especially true when we make others the scapegoats and yes. and and blame yes. shifting on them. And it's they do this, they make this. You know, whether it's people coming across the southern border or whether it's non-believers. You know, we separate the world into the lost and the saved. Us versus them. Yeah. Us versus when when they become the them and we become the us. We starve one another of the soul connection that keeps human beings human. And and you justify it by dehumanizing
1: the them. Exactly
2: what we said we
1: wouldn't do in the pro life movement. Right. You dehumanize them because they're they're murderers. They're you know. Uh, practice abomination or whatever, you know, whatever line you'd come up with it justifies treating them that way. It's very sad. So what, what's your position on abortion now? Well, it's
2: nuanced. Um, you know, first of all, and my wife Cheryl always uh pokes me under the table and says, here you go, you're you're talking about Bonhoeffer again. I always find my way to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's my posthumous spiritual mentor, this young, brave, brilliant uh, German church leader I mentioned earlier in our conversation was one of the first voices to speak out against Adolf Hitler and his mass murderous regime uh, and would lose his own life when he was hanged in a concentration camp at age 39. By the way, there's a lot of excellent scholarship uh, indicating that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was very likely a closeted gay man. And that just adds to his dimensionality, I think. Um, Interesting, yeah. But in any case, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer really has become my spiritual guide through this phase of my life. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And, you know, Dietrich uh, Bonhoeffer... uh, talked about how uh, we have to read the Bible against ourselves and against our own certitude. And that in the end, the question is not even what the Bible has to say, but what is the will of God in this moment? And for me, when it comes to abortion, uh, the reality of people's lives is what in the end truly matters, the reality of their suffering. And I'll give you one example. And this was something i hid away in my memory for more than a decade but i was thrown in jail in montgomery alabama in somewhere around 2010 for my protest work Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, the jail was overpopulated so they put me on the uh psychiatric wing which of course a lot of people chuckled about and said that's that's exactly where you belonged and yep yep (laughs) yep not at the expense of the people who were there but okay but anyway i was on the psychiatric wing and the reason that that's important is because it was the only co-ed wing of the jail in other words there were men and women in the same cell block okay and so uh here i was in my cell in about three doors away was a woman who was in deep distress she was in psychological anguish and she kept screaming a black woman barely clad it was a filthy environment I don't even want to describe what was on the walls it was filthy and she was screaming and begging somebody to help her children she kept saying, Where are my babies? I have three kids. Where are my kids? Who has my kids? Who's with my babies? Who's with my children? Mm-hmm. And at that point, for 20 plus years, 25 years, I had, I lived in a fantasy world. And in my fantasy world, any woman who was desperate in pregnancy and you know, was experiencing an unwelcome pregnancy, all they had to do, all that woman had to do was cry out and a whole bevy of rosy-cheeked, white, suburban evangelical women would fly to oh, her right. Aid. right they right. would bring baby blankets and mm-hmm. diapers and, mm-hmm. and uh, fanny cream and they would bring mm-hmm. offers of ba- free babysitting, and vouchers for food at the grocery store. And they would bring Christian doctors who would come and offer to take care of her uh, prenatal needs and birth and pediatric needs. Afterward. Right. There was just no problem in my fantasy life. All a woman had to do was call out for help. Why would any woman want to get an abortion when she could have all this support mm-hmm. for her child? But in on that wing of the Montgomery jail in Alabama, I watched a woman scream, scream for help. And no one, no one came to her aid. No one, yeah. not a guard, not a volunteer, not a chaplain, no one ever came to help her. And I, I, I secreted that away, but I harbored it for a long time and I revisited it in my mind thinking, I have no idea of what it means to face a pregnancy under unimaginable conditions. I don't care what that is. And, And later I would hear something else, and this is public so I'm not telling anything out of school, but Abigail Disney, the heir of a massive American fortune, would tell me about what led her as a young woman to seek an abortion. And mm-hmm. she had her own panic, her own fear. Unrelated to the, to the woman in Montgomery, there was nothing similar about their circumstances, but they right. were equally afraid. Yeah. And, and, and I said, wait a minute. All these years, I've been demanding that my listeners leave their reality and join my fantasy. Yeah, yeah, and right. I came to realize that as a minister of the gospel, my charge was to leave my fantasy and enter their reality—to—to to mm-hmm. be with them in their agony, their suffering, their fear, their decision-making process—that's a very complex one. So, while I, I will be honest, I—I I can't really find reason to celebrate abortion, mm-hmm. but I respect completely the fact that, one, I can never understand that person's circumstance. I can only empathize. I can only sympathize. I can only be present with them in their reality as close as I can get, but I can never fully experience it as they do. And I most certainly can't experience pregnancy, welcome or unwelcome, because I'm a man. I will never know that. Mm -hmm. And so I've come to the resolution that the best Person to handle this crisis is the woman Mm -hmm. who is pregnant. With whatever advisor she decides of her own power Mm -hmm. and agency to call upon, whether that's Mm -hmm. a pastor, whether that's a doctor, whether that's a friend, whether that's a a therapist, whoever it might be, that's entirely her prerogative as a human being. Mm -hmm. As as someone with full agency, and my job is to respect her even if she makes a decision I would not make in my fantasy life. Right. But what matters is not my fantasy and imagination. What matters is her reality. So I've resolved that. I'm with you, whether I like it or not, embrace it or not. My job is to love you, support you, and to be present with you if you wish that otherwise it's to stay out of your life and that's the way I honor that very complex difficult course that a woman makes in her life right, right. and 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 I don't try to impose yeah. anything on that person anymore a so
1: very good point we, we just try to we impose our moral way of looking at it on all, on, on everyone, and and people who are in the pro pro life or anti abortion movement are just so black and white about it. It's just, it's always murder. It's always wrong. And even if you vote for Joe Biden because he's pro choice, you're you're a murderer too. You're just the same. You're just it's a moral sin. I mean. It, it gets so, I get, absurd. I get
2: those, I get those email messages every day. Right. It's just so Nearly every day. I
1: don't even think about what really counts. And like you said, what is it really like? And well, you, there's a whole bunch of issues that you could get into and I'm, I'm starting to write about it myself. So maybe another pair of notes, but um, we're almost out of time, but there was one more question I wanted to ask. And that's what is your message for your fellow for evangelicals? You're on the fringes. I don't even I wouldn't even call you an evangelical, even though you might use the term because it's so outside of what my experience was. It doesn't sound like a typical evangelical at all. But what's your message for for those for for those people that you used to commun- you know, be and and connection with very closely?
2: Well, you know, I still speak in the mother tongue. Yeah. <laughs> So, I'll often say, uh, you know, to my fellow evangelicals, first of all, I've learned at this stage of my life, I'm 64, mm-hmm. and it's taken me, you know, a lot of years to get to the place of realizing how far I had drifted from Jesus, yeah. from the centrality of Jesus in my life, in my belief system, in the model uh, that he must be for every Christian, because Christians are Christ-centered. So what matters is not what the latest and most popular political celebrity is doing. What matters is what Jesus says and does. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, God himself calls us to return to our first love, to the first of our you know when jesus was asked of of all the commandments in the bible and there are more than 600 of them which are the most important and his answer is you know well because I, you know you you uh, expounded on this as much as i did uh, during our shared ministry careers he answered they are too the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he said the second is like it. And a lot of translators will render that. The second is the same as it. Mm-hmm. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said contained in these two are all of the commandments. So really nothing else matters is what Jesus right. says.
1: Exactly. Love yeah. God
2: and love people. And, and including your enemy including including your <laughs> enemy says love your enemy right so we don't even have that excuse to exempt us yeah from exactly love, from an ethic right. of love and no. love is limitless and the bible says god is love so the very nature of god is love and not long ago i had an atheist couple ask me you know as a minister can you officiate our wedding can you solemnize yeah. our marriage right. and i I said, well, do you love each other? And they said, yes. I said, well, that's good enough for me because the Bible says God is love wherever love is, God is, and wherever God is love is. So it's okay with me so long as there's love on the table. (laughs) There you go. Very good. So I do. I I say, let's go back to the very beginning and look at Jesus and the centrality of his Mm -hmm. ministry, his message, his model, and get back there. Uh, and, and, And that helps that helps. And of course, I also remind them of what's said in the New Testament book of James, that we have to look at ourselves in the mirror, right? and behold what kind of person we really are, not who we imagine ourselves to be, and even worse, imagine others to be, but who we really are, face ourselves. That's That's the most difficult thing I think we can do in life, is face ourselves, who we really are, what we really are, admit to it. But that's where, for an evangelical, it's where salvation begins, is saying, God, I got it wrong. I'm a sinner. I made a mistake. I'm coming to you and asking for mercy. And I say, you know, when we think we're all right, everything we believe is right, and is the right thing, and everybody else is wrong— we're no longer a Christian, because the Christian confesses not that I'm right, but that I'm wrong. Right, And that's why I need a savior. So, you know, I think American evangelicals need a, a very strong dose of self-doubt, of humility, if you will, rather than the pride and the arrogance and the certitude that we've been exerting now for decades, and is doing an enormous amount of harm in the world. Right.
1: That's a that's a great word, Rob. Uh, good, good thing to, to finish on. Really enjoyed our conversation. Um, what Where can people find
2: your book and these two documentaries and learn more? Well, thanks for asking. You have two options. One is RevRobShank.com, and you have to okay. spell it. Uh, like the dutch do with the two c's s-c-h-e-n oh, right
1: and i got that wrong that's the c-k, <laughs> C-K on the end
2: <laughs> you made it the german spelling rather than right. The Dutch. Um, <laughs> all uh, right but uh, revrobshank.com uh and the other is t-d-b-i it stands for the dietrich bonhoeffer institute t-d-b-i.org so either one revrobshank.com all um, right com.
1: okay there There's you go blog. folks
2: Or tdbi.org, which is our organization.
1: Just Google Angel of uh, No Armor of Light, or AKA Jane Rowe, which is on Hulu, I believe. And uh, those are great uh, films, really eye opening. So thank you, Rob, so much for joining us here at the Spiritual Brew Pub. And uh, it's a little bit too early in the morning. We didn't have we didn't have our beer together, but uh, <laughs> but Thanks. we sometimes do that here. Um, this, and the conversation I'm sure, I'm, was. A tonic I'm sure Dietrich enough. had some good German loggers, right? right? Oh, okay. he loved his <laughs> alcohol and
2: his tobacco. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: All oh, right, <laughs> tobacco, but uh, but not Either Norma. You couldn't have both. Norma do it. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Okay, Th- thank you so much, folks. It's gr- it's been a great time uh, again. Uh, check back with us later for the uh, next episode of the spiritual brew pub and enjoy responsibly
0: the spiritual brew pub podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift deconstruction or crisis of faith not to try to convert you to a particular destination but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief, and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.